This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fun vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox, as well as a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fun vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Our guest today is Jessica Carr, who is the general partner and founder of Coyote Ventures. Coyote Ventures is a VC fund that invests in women's health and wellness. Some of their portfolio companies include Mod, The Flex Company, and Wild. We discuss how she transitioned from being a scientist to investor, particular categories she's currently investing in, and also categories that she stayed away from, and how she thinks about risk. Without further ado, here's Jessica. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Finally, happy that we're finally able to do this. Yeah, um, there's always a few meetings that get chronically rescheduled, and this, this has been one of them. So go us for being here now. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I want to start a little bit from the very beginning. You were you, you were a scientist, right? And what I mean, what was your initial attraction to investing and startups? How did you actually get involved? Yeah, I, I joke that I'm a recovering biochemist. Um, so back back when I was younger, I am originally from West Texas, had no exposure to startups there. Um, and I thought that I would be um, a doctor. So my dad's a dentist. I grew up, started working in his dentist office when I was 14 years old. By the time I graduated high school, I was a dental assistant um, with all the licenses and everything um, and was a huge nerd, um, loved you know medicine. When I went to college, I uh, majored in biochem, also studied philosophy for fun and um, started working in labs as a scientist and decided that that was something that I was surprisingly good at, and I hadn't been really going down the path of medicine as much. Um, so I decided, uh, was really lucky when I was uh, a junior in college, I got uh, accepted to an Amgen Scholars Program at UC Berkeley, where I worked in a lab, um, then decided to go to grad school. Um, so I was in the PhD program at UCSD, 
Um, also still no exposure to startups. I thought that from there you would go into academics or pharma. Um, didn't see myself in either one. Um, so when I left the PhD program with a master's and decided to not continue on and work 80 hour weeks in a basement for the next 10 years, um, I, uh, I took a little time off, worked at a winery, did a yoga teacher training and, um, randomly got an email from impossible foods one day um it's, it was actually called sand hill foods back then but the professor i worked under at berkeley um, knew the founder of impossible it was exactly what i was looking for i wanted something impactful where i could still use my science degree um but build something more tangible and so uh you know the email i didn't know what you know seed stage was i didn't know what disruptive technology was but I understood the goals of, you know, the mission of the company to create something that, you know, meat eaters would 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 eat and in place of actual meat to to help mitigate climate change. Being from West Texas, where you know I am with you know my family and everybody who eats meat all the time, I could see the need. Um, so started working there and definitely saw you know a company going from zero to one and you know, now is worth several billion. Um, and after that, I did an MBA, worked with startups for a while, and then moved over to the investing side after feeling that I had seen a lot from the inside to pick up, you know, some pattern recognition and have sort of a contrarian view, especially when, when I was in food tech before, just seeing a lot of the money pour in and just didn't really think that they knew how to do due diligence the way that I would do it. So, um, decided to go to the investment side, worked briefly at a family office. And that's where um, in 2020, I started to see a ton of innovation in the women's health space, which I would say that that's definitely when uh, steam started picking up in that world. So became totally obsessed with the deals that I was seeing there and decided that it would be good as a standalone uh, fund. Can we can we discuss specifically what you were seeing in women's health that was so um, powerful to you, or you thought that it was an, a, a, a opportunity on the, on the investment side? Yeah. And I think there, there's a few things there. A lot of people that come into women's health are coming since it's such a nascent space coming in from somewhere else. And so, uh, the pattern is that usually we go through something personal and say, this hasn't been innovated in, in a very long time. Um, and it's been, you know, marginalized. And so like, if, if no one's going to do it, it's going to be me. And that was the pattern. I was seeing in the founders, but also like in my personal life, went through some struggles with with health and sexual wellness and started just to personally dive in and seek solutions for myself. Um, And that intersected exactly at the same time. Professionally, I was actually seeing deals in this space and like, you know, innovations that weren't fully out to market yet. Um, So I would say the first sort of categories that I was seeing were both on uh, sexual wellness and fertility um, and, and definitely the fertility space has, has gotten the most uh, funding so far. It's, it's definitely like the easiest to wrap your head around in some ways is uh, women who are like needing to have babies essentially. Um, and, and that kind of leaves open a lot that I got excited about is like taboo topics that are maybe slightly more uncomfortable to discuss. But I would see like the excitement even just going around, you know, professionally, socially starting to bring up these these topics of like, you know, periods and menopause and sexual wellness for women and uh, just some really exciting sort of discussions. And I just saw how that really lit a lot of people up. So at the family office, were you also investing primarily in in women's health? 
did they understand like it was very generalist it was more impact focused uh so i was doing deals from like municipal bonds to fintech to health and wellness food tech um so so it was a little too generalist for my own taste and i really wanted to you know, every time just like dive deeper in the space. And, you know, it was hard to do when when I was doing so many deals in so many spaces and didn't feel like I could really develop a a generalist thesis. Like I I think that I just really was more attracted to to really dive into a more specific area. So you go from, you know, a generalist family office, as you say, and then you want to start your own fund that focus on women's health. Can you talk a little bit about what it took to actually start the fund and being, you know, a, a emerging manager and and how you also approach on the fundraising side and kind of developing relationships with LPs? Yeah, I would say that it was a very fortunate time where maybe I wouldn't have been comfortable going out on my own at that time. But I started to see in a few networks I was in um, connecting with some other folks that were launching funds. So um, was was just like, oh, I, I had thought maybe that was a five-year goal, but then it became, you know, the, okay, it's happening right now. Thanks to like some, some great people in my network. Um, I was in like the Re- Republic Venture Partner Program. I remember that being like really good community for people starting funds. Um, I mean, that's not what it was for, but there were some great fund managers I met through that. Um, I then uh, had a friend working with the VC Labs, um, the Founder Institute, and they had just launched this like fund accelerator, they call it. So uh, that was really helpful for just like the very beginning, like, okay, how much do I raise? How do I write my list of like the first, you know, first degree network who could become LPs, uh, create my first, you know, pitch deck, refine my strategy. Um, I found it very helpful for just, you know, 101 for starting a fund. Um, you know, I think you definitely do have to have that first degree network that really believes in you and the thesis to, to get to the first close. So, you know, fortunately, I had that. And from there, it's definitely become, you know, a network effect of one person introduces another. Um, thankfully, we also have funding from Bank of America. So there's a lot of attention being drawn to, you know, the need for for funding towards emerging fund managers. I think a lot of diverse fund managers uh, are raising, you know, targeting less uh, than we would like in an ideal world. And it also takes a lot longer, um, especially in this environment right now. What was the uh, target for fund one? 10 million. 10 million. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. What typically then just thinking about how many companies do you typically see yourself investing in out of one fund? And what's what's a typical uh, check size? Typical check size has been 100k. We're planning to to up that some. So there's there's one company we've, we're doing 200k in, um, and you know want to get to be do, doing more of the 250k um, soon. But yeah, we've been we've done seven companies, 100k. One of them we're actually re-upping another hundred, and uh, we're planning to do about 20 to 25 out of out of fund one, and and having a small amount for for follow on of just a few of the sort of top performing companies. In the world of women's health, I know you you talked about sexual wellness, you also talked about fertility. How do you see the different branches of women's health that you find 
interesting. And what I also think is interesting as well, is just looking at your portfolio, you invest in um, quite a lot of kind of consumer product companies, um, like physical, uh, physical product companies, but also software companies and the actual outlook or what is success can look actually quite different too. How also do you think about what success is when you actually make an investment or what success should look like? Definitely. Yeah. So, so our portfolio construction is to mix different industries. So one way to segment women's health overall is what's the industry category. So there's med devices, therapeutics, digital health, CPG are the top categories, but there's several other categories. Um, for our fund specifically, we've done consumer products and digital health. We've done one by diagnostic. So we, we don't shy away from biotech, but we're not doing like therapeutic type biotech. So can give some examples later. We are focused uh, right now pretty heavily on digital health. So a few things we're excited about there are like points, like platforms for point solutions. So our latest investment, Malama Health, is for gestational diabetes. So a woman's pregnant, developing diabetes, they have to really highly track like blood glucose levels and everything they eat. The standard of care right now is to write everything down every day on a piece of paper several times a day. So if anything's going wrong, um, there's not really a way to troubleshoot it. So there's just some archaic systems, even at you know top hospitals, Stanford, UCSF. Um, they're actually working with some of these com- these hospitals right now. Um, so so that's kind of an example of a platform that's solving a specific point solution, and it's plugging in with the healthcare providers, and eventually will be you know payer reimbursed. Um, so I, that's that's one example in the digital health space. Um, The other one is personalized medicine at scale. So all these opportunities to understand what's actually happening in your body. So like genetics, microbiome, hormone tests, food sensitivities. There's so many ways now you can um, actually, that's that's kind of the physical test. There's also like risk assessments, like one of ours is a breast cancer diagnostic, and that's all inputs that you put in without, you know, blood or saliva samples, like actual biomarkers. So Understanding that, leveraging that to to how to you know take action either like in the doctor's office or you know in what you're eating or your lifestyle. Um, so so success, um, I, it it does look very different from those things. We've we've done some physical products. I would say um, success for those is definitely you know launch online, go to retail, scale at retail, scale scale product line. So, so we are really excited about some of those companies that we've invested in now, but I think just looking at the landscape of like what types of products are being innovated on as well as, you know, the current macro environment of, um, you know, a little bit of pullback on a few like consumers spend, uh, categories as well as just the cost of marketing. I, I feel like right now is a big problem. So, couple of reasons why we're, you know, not officially pausing consumer, but we're not actively, you know, it takes a, a lot of a bigger sell for us to get excited about that right now. What consumer categories do you feel has paused um, or, or, or that you've seen has paused during during this macro, macro climate? I, I think that it's not exactly a pause. I just meant for our diligence, it's a pause. Um, there's still, um, I don't think there's too much that's totally stopped. But I think, you know, even like sexual wellness, you know, physical products like um, toys are, are having a little bit of trouble, a couple a couple companies shutting down. I think, you know, beauty is, is a little bit hard, too. It's just like that's pretty crowded um, of like straight up beauty products. So I think, yeah. And then in our companies, it's not 
it's not pause, but it's like so right now, a lot of companies trying to focus on profitability versus growth. It naturally has them pull back some of their marketing spend. And so that actually has a you know downstream effect on projections like in five years. So some companies that I thought could be, you know, worth 100, 500 million in a few years have actually dialed that back by three to five X. Um, and yeah, we'll see if that can rebound at all. But that that's a pattern I'm seeing um, that that's not translating as much on the, you know, software and digital health side right now. So, so that's part of the reason why your focus now is more so on like software products or and, and, and specifically in the digital health sector. That's the main reason. And also just looking at the products we have now. And so we have uh, two sexual wellness, one for women 40 plus, so perimenopause through postmenopause, one period product and just saying like, okay, this is covering huge market sizes. And I'm not sure what other physical products would like sort of integrate into that portfolio right now, um, where we're like, okay, we're kind of looking more holistically at like, we're not going to do more than one, you know, mod which does you know vibrators and condoms and other things we're not going to do a competitor to that so i think like saying that we we're really really proud of the ones we've done and we're not sure like what other physical products would really fit like in the holistic picture right now so you feel as though right now you you um you kind of have exposure on on the physical product side like enough exposure where it doesn't maybe make sense right now to actually kind of keep investing in, in, in physical product companies. That, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I'm open to changing my mind, but I haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, how, how else do you think about like in terms of, you know, on, on, the, on the success side, because I mean, I imagine for digital health, just because of how software can scale, the um, a success could be, you know, um, I mean, I like it, it could be like a, a billion dollar outcome or, 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 or typically when you underwrite for, uh, for, for a digital product, that's the expectation or, 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 or that's the hope. Right. Um, I guess, I guess the expectation since it's, um, since it is outliers, probably it actually will go to zero more than likely. But, uh, but the hope is that of course you're underwriting because you believe you have a belief that it's, it can be a, 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 maybe a billion dollar outcome. Whereas a physical products, Typically, it's a hundred million dollar or like or above. Like that is a sign of success. How do you also think since you invested in both, you invested in physical products and also um how and also um digital products. How do you think as well about what success is when it comes to your actual portfolio itself? That's a good question. I think that is just so hard to to predict. And like, if you have good uh, sources for that, I mean, I've done my financial model and in some ways it feels like such a guessing game of like okay which company could you know I think like you said some of the physical you know consumer products you can look at like comps for for exits um, and you can look at comps for like graduating to you know a to b and maybe exiting you know I guess quote unquote early um I I think you know it is looking at comps and then um you know putting like like extra bet on the fact that in this space, there's not a lot of competition. Um, so you get a lot of feet, like the one I gave an example of that's like piloting with UCSF Stanford. Um, it's really showing like it's it's replacing such an archaic system that I think that the, the success rate is actually more likely than like a digital health that's like replacing like a version five that's replacing a version four versus us replacing, you know, something with technology where there's not actually a lot of technology risk, it's more of an execution risk. So we're not like, 
reinventing or we're not inventing something new that's like a tech risk. So like an example would be like Impossible Burger had tech risk um, in terms of like this burger just might not be good. It might like fail. Um, there was technology behind it that, that could have like the economics could have not worked out. Um, so that's an example where I saw like a tech risk um, and like also a market risk. But um, I think that these don't have that as much. So it, it is hard to say um, like how many I think will be outliers and how many think I will do large exits. So I, I try to use like reasonable comps for that and not say every company is going to succeed and everything's going to be successful. Um, and, but I hope, you know, 10 X would be nice. Um, however that happens. Yeah, no. Okay. No, no, that's helpful. Um, I just, I, I love kind of hearing, um, managers, um, fund managers like yourselves. Like I'm so impressed with the fact that they invest in both, um, that you all invest in both consumer product companies and also software companies, just because the outcomes can look quite different. And so I'm always just kind of fascinated on what that actually looks like when you, when you, um, when you underwrite how it all kind of fits into the portfolio, since it is like kind of two different business models per se. Right. Yeah. Segment those. And, and, and like the comps, you're de it's definitely segmented. And I mean, yeah, the, the portfolio construction model could have a different, yeah, it could have like a million different scenarios. Um, we, we also have one diagnostic, so we, we kind of have a, another business model within that, you know, as well in terms of digital, physical, and, and one um, in the biotech space. So adding to the complexity there, looking at like how, how FDA plays a role, um, how clinical trials play a role and things like that. Could you walk us through a bit of your um, like due diligence process and how you actually think and define what what problems that actually have like the size where it actually makes sense for an investment? Yeah, so our our process is um, um, we actually have like I'm the full time person. I hired a few venture partners who are really amazing. They they're actually not you know full time, so they're either um, most of them currently have a full-time role and do coyote on the side and they help assist with some of the diligence. So I find that that uh, really scales our ability to, to look at more deals. Um, I would say when, when we receive a company, I'm usually the one doing the first call. Um, sometimes the venture partners will do it. Um, first, we're looking at, you know, like the area of women's health and, and that it is something that we're not already exposed to in our current por portfolio. I meet the founders and really understand their story of like, why did they get here? And like I said, a lot of them have it, you know, in their own personal, personal lives or family um, is clo close to them is, is why they're, you know, launching this product or service. So understanding their why and then really looking at like how important is the problem. I think that there's, you know, some things we see that are, this is nice to have, or this might, might be a nice bonus, but we don't see it as cr like solving a critical problem in like humanity, basically. Um, and then we look at like the level of innovation. So I think some of these um, companies are, are super innovative, either on like how they're bringing forth the technology to this area, or how they're looking at marketing to a sort of a blue ocean. So on the marketing side, mod is a good example where a lot of the sex products are targeted at, you know, 20 year old men, if you look at like, Trojan and Durex and things like that. Um, and so Mod kind of took a different approach and said, like, there's a whole, you know, wave of people that that, that doesn't appeal to. So we're going to design like very high quality products, like 
you know, like good price points um, and really take a different approach to like, you know, wellness and, and sexual wellness. So I, I think that that was really innovative. And then, you know, some like our biotech on the other hand is very innovative in terms of looking at um, gene panels and how that's associated with the cause of endometriosis. So I would say, yeah, it takes me a long time to understand how, or how to explain how I'm thinking about innovation, but that that's basically like setting a really high bar to, to looking at what's the innovation. It's not just an access play. Um, sometimes access is a piece of the puzzle, but, but there needs to be something like really innovative about it. So that's the first call. We go through a diligence process. It would take me a long time to explain all of that, but it, it's pretty in-depth, especially on the product and science. Um, and then we have an investment committee. So there's three members there, again, part-time. Um, and, and they make a recommendation and, and we tend to agree usually on our final decision. So I, I make the final decision. After you make an investment, where do you think in terms of, I mean, obviously you've had, you, 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 you come from an incredible background being a scientist um, and, and of course in the space, but how do you think about adding value to, to entrepreneurs? And also where do you think that when you talk, when you chat with CEOs, maybe the one or two things that you think they might, especially first time CEOs might struggle with as first time uh, founders? Um, on the ad value part, we, we are able to assist on some like product and science related goals. So not every company needs this, but one company was um, doing their whole foods application, which is like actually a pretty high bar to get products into whole foods. And so they were compiling this list of um, like in their formulations, what are some of the you know, evidence out there that this is both safe and um, has high efficacy. And so we actually, um, myself and one of the venture partners was diving in and reading literature, like scientific papers and, and helping them, you know, choose the ones that we were putting in this Whole Foods application. So I was, I was definitely laughing like about that, that not very many other investors would, uh, you know, be able to, or be willing to do that. Um, and that's a pretty specific example, but yeah, we do have um, both on our team as well as, you know, in our expert advisory network, a lot of like science and medicine focused people. So really just seeing, you know, what the company need and who from our team can plug in, whether it is, um, you know, one or two calls, we figure something out, but there has been like some of our expert advisors like matching and they'll, they'll get compensated for something that's needed or become an advisor. So um, we're still building out that structure. Um, but yeah, I definitely see sort of like expanding networks is a, is a big theme, especially like first time CEOs, especially 100% of our portfolio CEOs are female um, and 50% on the, the co-founder side are BIPOC. And, and one struggle that um, comes up a lot is, is just like how we're focusing on growing our networks where we, we don't all come from like, you know, uh, a top university where we had, you know, buddies that we were partying with, like an MBA and things like that. So um, it is something that I that I am sensitive to. And unfortunately, in this sort of downturn and everybody being, you know, a little more cautious with their funding, I see that as, as a, the network effect definitely disproportionately harming um, underrepresented founders. And so I think the expert advisory network that we're building is, is leveraging that, but even um, within, within our network uh, point as well, like co-investors being a really important part too. So either 
in the round we're in or follow on rounds, just really spending a lot of time with other investors so that, uh, you know, when I send something, they'll pay attention um, and, and can get the companies funded. How, how also do you think as well about sourcing and meeting, meeting founders and, and looking at opportunities? Yes. I mean, sourcing is, is pretty hard. We do, we are open to cold outreach. So we have the form on our website um, and, and we try to be active in a lot of communities where we'll see deal flow. I mean, the hard part is there's not a lot where we, you know, there's maybe a few newer things focused on women's health, but given that our thesis is pretty specific in terms of what I described on the digital health side, as well as looking for things, you know, mainly under the 15 million valuation and something we have less exposure to. I just feel like we've narrowed down what we're looking for so much that it's like when I look at the YC demo day, I can like look through the list quickly and just be like, okay, maybe that one, Um, you know, and, you know, I tend to not enjoy listening to pitch events personally. So, you know, (laughs) I'm like, you can look at a list again and say like, okay, that one might be a fit. Uh, And I'll like, you know, I can read a deck and like, two minutes and then have questions for them. I'm like, please do not pull up your screen and take 30 minutes to walk me through a 10 slide deck, you know, um, sourcing is challenging. Yeah. I'm like, I've, I usually like have the zoom meeting and I'm like, you can't share your screen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's not a, it's like a crutch sometimes. So, um, I mean, I have to just be able to talk things out. So, Sourcing is is a is definitely a lot of work to find something that that you're excited about. Um, so just I attend a lot of events. I I actually was also at South by Southwest. We had a femtech salon there with some great companies, and uh, I think events is is a nice way because even the the last deal we did Malama Health, I I met them at an event, and um, I definitely was like I might have overlooked this one. If I wouldn't have seen the founder, sat down with her, she pulled out her phone and showed me the app. Um, yeah, I might, I might have fully looked that one over. What's the general pulse? Because I know that your your focus is digital health. What's what's kind of the pulse? Do you feel is digital health right now in terms of um, you know how many founders are getting funded? Um, whether if it, it, it's an attractive opportunity or or a category for other investors? Yeah, I think digital health has been really heating up. And I think, you know, there's been people that have been in it for much longer that were maybe, you know, definitely early pioneers in that space. Um, I think now it, it's it's heating up a lot. So I think the bar just becomes a lot higher. Um, I think that that's kind of the overall theme is, is some of them um, are are a lot further ahead tech wise than like women's health um, where I would go back and say like a lot of the women's health innovations are innovative and that nothing has been really applied to that area before. Um, Whereas in digital health, a lot of them might be um, just a lot further along in terms of like I was looking at the the current YC batch and I don't know how many of them were you like GPT integrated XYZ um, I think like <laughs> definitely more than two. <laughs> so just on the health category too. So, um, yeah, I, I think the pulse is that, that it's heating up, the bar is getting higher. It's getting, um, you know, like a lot of their sales being targeting payers, um, trying to work with providers as well as work with employers. Um, 
and as well as the the B2C business model, but that's super hard. So I think that what I heard a lot of the payers and providers say is that they're very exhausted. They There's not like a great way to just like, they're almost doing the same work as us in a way. They're like getting company pitches, they're, they're diligencing them, they're seeing if it integrates with their system um, or like is reducing the right health outcomes. So so what I hear on the, on that side is a lot of exhaustion. What's one thing that you would change about venture capital today? I think that the dyna- the standard dynamic of founder VC is contentious. Um, I think that there's been just like a bunch like like the average reputation of VC with the Patagonia vest and just being an asshole. You can bleep that out, um, <laughs> but. I, I think that that I see that in a power dynamic with with some of the founders where sometimes I feel like oh I, I'm on your level like we're the same and then sometimes it's like well there is a power dynamic and like in some cases I have control on some things that that there prevents a little bit of like full authenticity and honesty in some ways um, and so I would love to change like sort of I would like VC as a whole to be friendlier and like some of the bad players not be so prominent um, as well as like how we can work through some of the power dynamics to um, like have, have more like authentic and honest relationships with what the teams we're working with. Yeah, no, that's a great, really great point. Really great point. Um, what is, what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Oh, so on the personal side, uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves, uh, amazing book. Um, it's myths and archetypes of the wild women as written by a union analyst. So ha- has themes that are sort of in the feminine nature of like being intuitive, um, being in line with like nature. So that was actually what in- originally inspired the name Coyote. So instead of wolf, it's it's Coyote for a couple of reasons. Um and so that that would be sort of my go-to recommendation on the personal side. Um, on the professional side, I can say what I'm reading right now. Um, it's it's more on the sort of both. I feel like all the pro- professional books sort of span both personal personal and like more like development type books. Um, I'm reading one called Permission to Speak. So practicing like being more like confident in my voice. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what I'm reading now. And my, my venture partners are reading it with me. So we have a, a book debrief meeting in a few weeks. Oh, cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I, I'm definitely going to add, uh, add these to my list. Per- permission to speak sounds great. Um, that's something that I always want to work on. Yeah. I can't see the author's name. I'm looking at the physical copy across the room, but she's in LA too. And she does like, uh, oh, cool. coaching. That's awesome. So, um, well, Jessica, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So happy to finally be here. So, so happy we finally got this done. This is great. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Jessica. Jessica, thanks again for coming on the show. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really, really appreciate it. So in your mind, because I'm sure you've seen a ton of this while working at at at, um, at Vobin and um, your experience talking with um, probably hundreds, if not thousands of investors, what are the different use cases in your mind for SPVs? Definitely. Um, so 
you know, mul- multiple use cases. Um, so for angels, it could be a group of friends and family uh, looking to invest in early stage startups. Um, they might not have, you know, sufficient capital in their own um, to invest individually. So pooling funds together to invest and get access to some awesome companies that's coming up uh, is one of the reasons. Uh, Another reason would be, you know, to build your track record. Um, Some angels want to professionalize their investing. Some VCs want to professionalize their investing and, you know, do it as a full-time job. Um, And so, you know, using the SPV model or the syndicate model allows them to start building their track record, build those relationships, and ultimately with the goal of creating a venture capital fund. Um, You know, we've been around for, you know, four plus years, uh, at least for Vauban, Carta, you know, 10 plus. But with our product, you know, we've had, we've seen some angels or professional investors become full-time fund managers. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really great to see, um, you know, their, their journey of, you know, doing deal by deal and then eventually moving on to being a full-fledged full-time investment manager. So, you know, our product allows for uh, the full, full range uh, from start to finish. I guess one thing that, um, that I'd like to mention is that, you know, we are an international platform. So, you know, we were originally based out of London. We have jurisdictions in Luxembourg and UK. Uh, so we're very familiar with, you know, the European side of investors. Um, we have launched a U.S. product as well. So that's catering to the U.S. investor network. Uh, we very much think that venture is global. And so, you know, you'll have, you know, Venture capitalists are very social people. They're going to conferences from San Francisco to New London to, you know, Hong Kong. So, you know, they end up building a network that is quite global. And so, um, you know, we do have a platform that caters to an international investor. So very familiar with, you know, uh, a wide range of investors around the world. So can you invest um, with Vobin? Can you use um, Vobin as a platform to invest in companies um, around the world or is it just Europe and the U.S. mostly? Yeah. So in terms of the company, the target company, it can be based anywhere in the world. Um, in terms of the investment vehicle or the SPV structure, uh, it'd be either based in the UK or the US or the, uh, Luxembourg. If you are loving the show, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. I'm also doing some more events, so you'll also be the first one to receive information about those.